0: Something in Revelation chapter twenty that's always confused me. Um, I've kind of had a change of position on what this is teaching, and I want to share some of that with you. And it really, it centers around um, the two resurrections. Two resurrections. Now, I always thought that when Christ comes back, there's going to be a resurrection of everyone. Those that are His are going to go to be with Him in the air. Those that are not. They're going to be judged and sent to hell. And that's um, that's true. There are Both are going to rise again. But when we look at Revelation 20, it talks about how there's a, a gap between the resurrection of God's children and the resurrection of the wicked. And I've always thought it was figurative. But I'm going to present to you, and I have consulted um, one commentator who I highly respect, and this is his opinion on it as well, so I'm not by myself on this. But I haven't heard a lot of teaching on it, and maybe you have more light and you can share that light with me uh, and with the rest of us afterward. But I want to share some thoughts with you about the thousand-year reign that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Now, there's different teachings about this. I have tended to be an amillennialist, which means no millennium. In other words, when it says that Christ is going to reign for a thousand years, that that doesn't mean literally a thousand years. It's talking about just a really long period of time. The, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, that that's His reign through the church. That He's in heaven, He's reigning on the earth through the church. I think you're, you know, that's a solid position to take. But I'm going to present to you this morning that really, I think you can interpret this to mean a literal thousand years. And what I really want to hone in on is, when does that thousand years take place? And just to kind of cut to the chase, I believe what the Scripture is teaching us is that between the resurrection of God's people and the resurrection of the wicked, there's going to be a thousand years. That when Christ comes back, He's going to raise His dead. The dead which are in Christ are going to come forth out of the graves. And those that are alive and remain are going to be called up to be with Him in the air. And then there's going to be a, uh, a destruction of the wicked in the earth. And I don't know how long that's going to take. But there's going to be a destruction of the wicked. And it says here in chapter 19 how that's going to happen. The remnant were slain with the sword of Him that sat upon the horse. That's Jesus Christ. When He comes down out of heaven, He has that sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God which proceeds forth from His mouth. His Word is going to slay those who are not His children. And then Christ is going to reign on the earth, it says, with His saints for a thousand years. And then at the end of that time, there's going to be the resurrection of the wicked and then there's going to be the judgment day and then death and hell are going to be thrown into the lake of fire and that's going to be the end of this experience that we have here in this life so let's look at these verses and i welcome your feedback when we're done revelation chapter 20 verse 5 says but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So like I've already said, I believe that that thousand years takes place between when Christ raises His people and when Christ raises the wicked. Now we can look in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I just confess to you that I've had the Lord's coming again strongly on my mind, especially since March, especially since things took the turn that they've gone in in our country and around the world. It's hard not to think about, is this when the Lord's going to come back? The Bible says for us to recognize the signs of the times. We don't know the day or the hour, but we're supposed to recognize the signs of the times. We're supposed to look and we're supposed to see what's taking place around us. And the Bible says that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And if we're not living in perilous times, I don't know what perilous times are. I told the church at Shoal Creek several weeks ago, I've always in my mind, tend to be one that imagines the worst case scenario. Because when you imagine the worst case scenario, then you can only be pleasantly surprised. If you assume the worst, then it can only get better from that. So I've always tended to assume the worst about persecution. I'm sure you can remember in my preaching how I've often emphasized being ready to suffer for Christ's sake. And suffering for righteousness' sake. And Jesus says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But I say it's perilous times because something happened six or seven months ago that convinced us as God's people that the most loving thing for us to do was to stay away from each other, to avoid contact with one another, to not get close to each other. I mean, I was convinced. I believe all of us were convinced that that was the most loving thing we could do is to try to stay away from those that we love because we don't want to get them infected. And with the light that we have, with the knowledge that we have, I think that was probably the right course to take. But I thank God that He brought to mind in the the minds of many Christians the, the text from Hebrews chapter 10 which says, Forsaking not the assembling of of yourselves together is the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. It's become a matter of God's commandment. It's not a matter of safety. It's not a matter of personal preference. The Bible says that we love one another. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We need to have a biblical view of what it means to love one another. And I would submit to you that not assembling together with the saints of God is not a biblical way to love one another. I know that I'm not in the vulnerable population, but I believe if I was, and I know those that are, that if, if if I have to choose between the risk of you getting me sick or not getting to be together, not being able to see each other, not being able to even hug or shake hands or or give one another a kiss of affection, as the Bible says, I'd just assume the Lord take me right now. If I can't meet together with God's people, and I'm thankful for how God blessed you all to be able to meet here in this way, and I thank God for that. We're living in perilous times. The Lord may not come back. He may come back. I I tend to think maybe He'll come back before the elections. We'll find out real soon if I'm right or wrong on that. The Lord's coming back, and there's going to be in the last days scoffers who say, where is His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, uh, things have gone on like they always have. And the Bible reminds us that in the days of Noah, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and God shut he and his family in. And then the, the flood of God's judgment fell upon the earth. And it's going to be the same way when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Now if you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it describes for us what it's going to be like when Christ comes down out of the sky. It says says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or perceive them which are asleep. In other words, if you're alive when Christ comes back, you're not going to get to be with Him before those like Sister Perry, who have died and been buried in the grave. He says, we're not going to prevent them. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It doesn't say all of the dead. It says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And He says, "Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." So when Christ returns, the dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain, the Bible says in another place, we're going to be changed in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. We're all going to be changed. If you're dead, you're going to be raised with a glorified body. If you're alive, your body's going to be changed in an instant into a glorified, sinless, immortal body that's going to be prepared to dwell with Christ in eternity without ever getting sick or weary or uh, or uh, hungry or any of the infirmities that we experience in this life. There's going to be no more death and no more sorrow. So when we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, which also talks about the resurrection in chapter 15, It says this in verse uh, 26, it says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so we're going to look in Revelation and we'll see that destruction of our enemy, death. He must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And Psalm 2 teaches us that. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, says, thou shalt break... "...them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Who's that talking about? It's talking about the enemies of Christ. And you know, the Lord Jesus takes it very personally when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. When those who are the enemies of the church hurt God's people, Jesus, te- Jesus takes that very personally. When you're persecuted, when you're mistreated, when you're abused, Jesus takes it personally. And so those who would harm you, those who would mistreat you because of your faith, and you know, we live, another reason we live in perilous times. You suffer as believers. I used to struggle with this. The Bible says, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I used to struggle and say, well, I must not be living very godly because I don't feel like I'm suffering persecution. Well, here's, here's the thing. I will submit to you by the authority of God's Word that if you're a child of God, living your life by faith, that you're suffering persecution even though you may not be aware of it. We live in a country, thank God, where there's a separation of church and state, and it will be illegal for your employer to fire you for your Christian faith. That doesn't mean they like you for your Christian faith. It doesn't mean that they might not find another way to get rid of you, when really it's your faith that's so offensive. You're suffering, even though it may be more subversive and it may not be as overt. As believers, you're just going to have to be okay with that. There's a lot of talk about oppression and people who are mistreated because of their skin color or their religion or fill in the blank. But I'll tell you, it's God's people who suffer, the Bible says, of whom the world is not worthy. Because the Bible says that Cain killed his brother Abel. Those who do not have faith persecute those who do have faith. Because the world hates the light that the believer shines, the light that Jesus Christ has given to you and put inside of you. Well, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And if you read Revelation chapter 20, back to the text where we started with, verse 14, it says, "...and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire." This is the second death. And it says that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's the judgment day. If your name was not found written in the book of life, you're cast into the lake of fire. And you see, after the second resurrection... After the thousand years, when Jesus Christ raises the wicked, it says that's when the judgment day takes place. It says, um, And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was found no place for them. And he says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So there's two sets of books here. There is a volume, multiple volumes of the books of works. That's what the dead are judged out of. And then there's another book open. That's the book of life. And if your name's not found written in the book of life, you're going to be judged from the book of works. And if you're ever doing evangelism, this is a real good question to ask someone who is not a Christian. You say, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God's throne, and he was to say, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? What would you say? And if the answer is, well, I think I've been a pretty good person. I think I've been better than other people. Well, look, you're being judged from the book of works. And all the secret things, all the wicked things you've thought, all the secret things you've done that you don't want anybody to know about, all of it's recorded there. There's nothing missing out of that book. And you're going to be judged out of that. And we need the Spirit of God. We need the grace of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the new birth to open our eyes, to take off the blinders, and to show us the, the sinfulness of our heart. The wretchedness of our heart. We sang a song yesterday about God's amazing grace to save uh, terrible wretches. I can't remember a, a single line from it. But then one of the lines is grace to save even someone like me. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the new birth. He shows you, like He showed the Apostle Paul, that you're the chief of sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom Paul said, I am chief. And so if you feel yourself to be a no-good, hell-deserving, rotten, base, uh, terrible sinner, you're in a good place today, I submit to you, by the authority of God's Word. But you're in a, a right place, a prime place, to behold the Lamb of God hanging on the cross for your sins. And to look to Him by faith and to believe that He died for your sins and to believe that you're justified through His blood. And that that is the proof that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Can you look at that book? Can you open it up and see if your name's written there? No, you can't. How can you know then that you're a child of God? Because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's the evidence that God loves you. We love Him because He first loved us. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't repent of your sins, then when that resurrection day takes place, when the day of judgment comes around, then we're going to be judged. You're going to be judged from the book of works. And God's standard is perfect. God is just. He's righteous. He hates sin. He says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the only hope for hell-deserving sinners is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute, that He took our place and the wrath of God was poured upon Him. And He is the right one to judge the world in righteousness, as Paul says in Acts 17, because He knows what the wrath of God is for sin. He's experienced in Himself. He's experienced in His soul what the wrath of God for sin is. He knows how much God hates sin because He is God and because He's experienced the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. And so He is the right one to sit on the throne in judgment and to say, you have sinned and this is the just punishment for your transgressions. But thank God for the Gospel. Thank God for the love of God in Jesus Christ that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Ezekiel 18.4 says, "...the soul that sinneth, it shall die." And so, we went to a funeral yesterday, and as much as we love Sister Perry, her being in a grave right now is proof that she was a sinner. And if the Lord tarries, that's where each one of us is going to. And how did that happen? Because the Bible says, "...by one man's sin," Romans 5.12, "...entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men." For that all have sinned. Now I want to make a tangent note here for a second. When it comes to the Word of God, you cannot piecemeal this. You can't pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. As believers, not God's not given us the liberty to say, Well, I believe in the New Testament, but I can't believe all of the Old Testament. Or I believe in the gospel, but I don't believe in the six days of creation. God's not giving you that liberty. And here's one example of that. The Bible says that by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death is the result of one man's sin. What does that tell us? That tells us that mankind came upon this earth and preceded death. say, well, yeah, that's obvious. That's what the text is saying. All right, well, let's just think about this for a little bit. If you're like me... Coming through public high school in 10th grade, my biology teacher said, well, actually, there's a real strong theory that most smart people believe, and that is that man came from the descent of monkeys, that time plus chance and death resulted in the evolutionary developments of man upon the earth. Well, what is that teaching? Darwin's theory of evolution, the origin of the species, is teaching that death preceded man. That death was, on the, death was in the world for a long period of time. Survival of the fittest produced man over millions and millions of years. But what does the Bible say? In the Gospel, in the New Testament, the Bible says that man preceded death. That it's because of man's sin that death entered into the world. Those two cannot be in harmony. You've got to choose. Are you going to be a believer who believes in the Word of God by faith that the worlds were framed by the Word of God and on the seventh day he rested? Are you going to try to walk that line and say, well, I want to be a Christian, but I also want to be along with the world. I want to hold hands with the world. I want to have the approval of the world. I want to have the degrees the world offers. And I want to have the uh, esteem of the world. You can't. You're going to have to choose. The line's already been drawn. Are we on God's side or are we not? Do we have faith in the Word of God, all of it? Are we going to doubt God's Word? Now, my mother-in-law quoted a verse last night, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. She said, well, my faith is little. I need more faith. Look, God's not going to bruise a, a broken reed. He's not going to quench a smoking flag. If you've got just a little bit of faith, that's all that matters. Just a little mustard seed size faith is all that matters. And if you want more faith, I would submit to you, come to God's word. Read God's word. It'll verify it to, to you. The Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're the child of God and that the things that God has revealed to us in His Word that He's preserved for us is the truth of God. It's the revelation of God. It's the thing that you can bet your life upon. It's the thing you can build your life upon. It's a thing you can be absolutely certain of when your eyes deceive you, when your ears deceive you, when your heart deceives you, when the devil deceives you, when your neighbor deceives you, even when your loved ones and your friends deceive you. You can be confident that the Word of God is not going to deceive you, that Jesus Christ is plainly revealed, that His person and work is lifted up, that we can live our lives confidently, making each step uh, led by the Word of God, the Holy Spirit as He guides us from God's Word. Amen. Now Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I think that verse is teaching us that every one of us, and the whole creation even, we're groaning, we're waiting for something, we're wanting something, we're desiring something. I believe what it's talking about is we're, we're wanting the new heavens and the new earth. We're wanting those, those sinless bodies. We're wanting those glorified bodies. We're wanting that sinless existence. We're wanting that that experience that God created us for, which is unbroken, untainted, unvarnished, intimate communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To see Him as He is. We see Him through a glass darkly, but soon we'll see Him face to face to behold His glory. And yes, we may have to go through suffering. Yes, we may have to go through the chilly waters of, of Jordan and death to, to enter into that. But the creation is groaning and desiring that we're longing for that, and that day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, Second Thessalonians said that the day of Christ is not going to come until some things take place. So, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three says, "Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come." except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, the Antichrist that it's talking about right here, says he's going to be revealed first before that day comes. And he says, don't let any man deceive you. This Antichrist is going to be a deceitful guy. He may be already on the earth right now. He's going to be someone who's charming, who looks good, who speaks smoothly. The Bible says he would be able to deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. And so we've got to be on guard. Because somebody's going to come along before Christ comes back and says there's going to be a great falling away. I thank God. I talked to my brother-in-law last night. He said, yeah, people talk about how hard 2020 has been. But look, I wish I could quote you exactly. But basically he said, but I'm really happy. I've never been doing better. The Lord's blessing him with revival. And I thank God to see the revival he is sending. But there's also a falling away. There are religious leaders, there are youth pastors all over in the last year or so that have been putting their deconstruction of their faith on public to try to take as many with them as possible, I guess. There's a falling away right now. Look, if you don't want to go to church, if you don't want to serve Jesus Christ, if you've only been coming here because you want to please mom and daddy, you've got a good reason to not go to church to avoid the virus. And I would submit to you the only ones that are going to church right now are the ones that really want to be there. That's the way it was in the early days of the church when, when they had to meet together in, in the caves at midnight somewhere to avoid persecution. That's the way it is in China where they're being uh, carried out to prison and their pastors are being beaten or put in prison. There's going to be a falling away, he says, and that man of sin will be revealed the son of perdition, who, so, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship. Now, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. I'm not saying anything, but I did see a news clip where I'm not going to say his name, but he was there with two other Middle Eastern leaders from America. And on the sign, guess what it said right there behind him? Peace and security. Middle East peace deal. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. This Antichrist is going to rise up He's going to deceive the multitudes, and he's probably going to be a charming guy. But then notice what he says here. He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel, and that was a warning to those who were in Judea. In, uh, Judea. He said, "When you see that," he said, "those which are in the mountain are those which are on the housetop." Go and flee into the mountains. If you're in the city, flee into the mountains. If you're outside the city, don't come into the city of Jerusalem. Don't return into the house for your stuff. You flee away. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Don't hold to the things of this world. When you see this take place, it's time to get out of there. And those that were Christians, those that feared God, those that believed in Jesus' word, they took heed to that when Titus and the Romans entered into Jerusalem and they entered into the temple and they saw the abomination of desolation. I don't know if they offered a slaughtered a slaughter to pig on the altar or what they did, but it was clear this is what Jesus was talking about. This is what Daniel was talking about. It's time for us to get out. And those that fled, they were saved from the, the slaughter and from the famine that took place there in Jerusalem when it was seized by the Roman army. I believe that was a type of the ultimate of the God's judgment of the whole world. The Antichrist is going to sit in the temple of God. Now that confuses me. But when you think about what's going on with the microchips and Elon Musk, if you follow him and what he's got going on with the the brain things that control the... I even saw a video in 2005 where they had identified the, the God gene called V2, the God gene. And this was a leaked video that was presented to the Department of Defense in 2005 about how if we get a vaccine and we put in this thing that will influence the V2 gene, then we can inject it to those uh, fundamental radicals in the Middle East and keep them from doing something like they did on September 11th. That was in 2005. 15 years later, what do you think is possible? And they've identified, and he showed the brain scan where if somebody heard the reading of God's word or a religious text, and there was a different area that lit up in the brain, Those who were believers, the front part of their cortex lit up. And those who were not believers, this middle part back here, which was an area that's associated with anger and dislike, lit up. He said that's the V2 gene. If we could just get in there and uh, disable that, then we can keep people from being religious. Now, I don't believe as a child of God, it can take away the Spirit of God from within you. But when it says that the Antichrist, the son of perdition, is going to enter into the temple of God, that causes me to question and to wonder, because what's the temple of God? In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle and it was the building that Solomon built. But what's the temple of God? The temple of God is your body where the Holy Spirit lives. So what does that mean the Antichrist is going to do when it says he enters into the temple of God? I don't know. I'm just giving you some food for thought. Showing himself that he is God. He wants to be worshipped. That's his ultimate agenda. He may say, let's have world peace. Let's have unity among the religions. That's what's going on right now. Let's see how we can get the Catholics and the Jews and the Muslims together. And you know what they're going to do? I'll submit to you. If they get together, which they probably will, they're going to turn their attention to persecuting anyone who doesn't toe the line. Who doesn't bow down to this Antichrist. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Listen. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. All right, so that's the destruction of the Antichrist. But I want us to go now and just let's read most of the chapter, chapter twenty. And we're gonna see this order of events. Now I'm gonna start in chapter nineteen. I want you to see and imagine with me that what God is teaching us here in your mind. I'm not saying we need to make up the future. I'm saying let's try to imagine what God is saying. This is what's going to happen in the future. He's given it for us for a reason, for our well-being, for our safety, for our, um, for our spiritual profit. We need this. And he says... Let me see where I want to start. Chapter 19. Let me start in... Uh, Verse 7. This is good. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. Talking about the Christ. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. Now that's good news, isn't it? The marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife hath made herself ready. It's the church, right? Are we ready? Are we ready if Christ comes back today? Are we ready? Has the bride made herself ready? There's a lady on YouTube who had a dream about the Lord's coming back. She said in her dream... She saw a man, and he was looking at his watch. He was in a tuxedo. Obviously, he was the groom. He was leaning up against the wall. She drew a picture that she saw. And it was obvious that the time for the wedding had begun. And he's like, come on, I'm waiting for his wife to come out. And in the other room, there's the bride. And she's sitting in front of the vanity. And she's just happy. She's putting on her makeup. But there's not a sense of urgency. She's like, oh, yeah, we're going to get married before we do she doesn't realize the time's come. It's time. Are you ready? Are we ready? Her, his wife made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. This is John talking to one of the messengers. He says, Brian, thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war." Jesus Christ sitting on a white horse. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Crowned him with many crowns. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he had on his name written uh, a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Quoting Psalm 2, He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God." So you know when you see vultures flying around, that something's died, or maybe they think something's about to die. God sends a message out to all the vultures, all the birds. He says, y'all get ready, you're about to have a feast, because Christ is about to come and destroy His enemies. Gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And he says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which He deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped His image. These were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of Him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of His mouth, and all the fowls were filled with the flesh. I think this is after the first resurrection. Christ comes to destroy His enemies off the earth. So now, their souls have been sent to hell. I want you to think about this. For the child of God, it only gets better and better. But for the wicked, it gets worse and worse. When you're dead in trespasses and in sins, you're living in hell on earth because you don't have a relationship with God. And when you're born again, you're living in heaven on earth because now you have a relationship with God. In the resurrection, you're going to have a glorified body. When you die, if you die before Jesus Christ comes back, Sister Perry right now, her soul is in heaven. And she's enjoying the fullness of the presence of God. But you know what? There's a future thing she can look forward to, and that is when her soul and body are reunited in the resurrection. Well, the opposite is true for the wicked. When you die and you leave this earth, your soul goes to hell if you're not a child of God. And you know you have something to dread even more in the future, and that is when your soul and body get back together and you burn in hell and your body experience what your soul is suffering in hell. He says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. This is after Christ has destroyed his enemies. It says, An angel came down, and he had a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So after Christ has destroyed all of his enemies, he binds Satan, it says, for a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. So Satan is bound during this period between the first resurrection of God's people and the second resurrection of the wicked. And he says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. You've entered into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is reigning on the earth with His people. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the Word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither His image, neither had received His mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So these saints of God came through great tribulation. But here they're reigning with Christ a thousand years. They've been raised again. He says, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. I believe all of God's children are going to be a part of that first resurrection. And reigning with Christ for those thousand years while Satan is bound. But then it says, blessed is he That is holy and he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. All right. Satan is loose, and what's going to happen now? And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Gog and Magog, according to John Gill, means covered and uncovered. His thought was, and I agree with this, that this is talking about the resurrection of the wicked. When Satan is loose and the wicked rise up, he goes forth and there's going to be one last assault. Uh, uh, as vain as it is, his his vanity and his pride, he's going to lead this multitude. All of the wicked who have ever lived and are alive now are going to attack Christ and His bride here, reigning on the earth. And it says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and come past the camp of the saints. So we're not going to have a bunch of different congregations like we have Mount Carmel and Hopewell and Grace Chapel and Shoal Creek and... Uh, All the different congregations. We're going to be one body together forever with the Lord. The camp of the saints. And it says, The devil led these armies against the the, the camp of the saints. And the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's how the battle ends. When the resurrected wicked are attacking the resurrected just, fire comes down from heaven and they're consumed. And then it says, And the devil that had deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's his end. He says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. He says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I want to close with two more verses. One is Psalm 110, verse 3. The Bible says, Psalm 110, Thy people... Shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast to do of thy youth. That's talking about Jesus Christ. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast to do of thy youth. The Bible says that his people shall be willing in the day of his power. God is able to conquer our rebellious sin natures. He's able to subdue all things unto Himself and those that are His covenant, beloved people. He's able to make willing. He's able to draw us sweetly to Himself, irresistibly by His grace, so that those who were rebellious uh, uh, enemies of, of God Opposers of Christ and of His gospel like the Apostle Paul when his name was Saul of Tarsus. He's able to conquer our sin nature. and He's able to place His Spirit inside of us and make us willing and supple and submissive of followers and lovers of Jesus Christ. It says, He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned unlike unto His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able to subdue, even to subdue all things unto Himself. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of Lords. And it says God also hath highly exalted Him, Philippians two nine, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we be blessed to boldly proclaim that truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Sinners should repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is coming back. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Paul says in Acts 17. Because He's appointed a day in which Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, will judge the world in righteousness. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God bless you.